2: Did you ever have the feeling that maybe somebody just didn't even want you to do your job on a given day? We've sort of had that feeling here at WNPR today. We had a few audio problems in the morning on where we live. And then this afternoon, we've had all kinds of struggles, including the fact that all of us are are sort of red and rosy-cheeked because we were just out in the parking lot for a fire alarm. It was nothing, but it was a fire alarm, real fire trucks. Um, but But it was right before showtime, so we had to go scrambling up the stairs, and get ready to do this show, which we, we know, despite other problems we've had getting the show together, we, you know, it it'll probably will, will be one of the great shows we've ever done, because that's the way things work. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to tell you a story about a piece of art that doesn't look like a piece of art. And for that reason, <clears throat> workers, uh, you know, well-intentioned workers who have good hearts, uh, who are getting uh, a, a part of the city uh, ready for some road construction, uh, you know how they go in and they spray paint stuff to show like where the utilities are and stuff like that well they didn 't realize that it was art, so they spray painted it anyway so we 'll tell you that story and it has a happy ending We're gonna, uh, we 're going to in fact, we will take you live to the remediation of that problem uh, later on in the show and then one of the things we try to do here on the Monday Scramble once in a while is because I think a lot of us kind of you know I don't know. I think a lot of us of a certain generation have kind of given up on music, not given up on music. We still listen to music, but we don't learn about new music, even if it's really good, even if it's really popular and really important. So in the same spirit that led us to have a conversation about the new D'Angelo release uh, back in uh, early January, we're going to have a conversation about the new Kendrick Lamar release. And let me just say, I'm you know, if if you're one of these people who kind of like gave up after Talking Book or Inner Visions with Stevie Wonder or something, (laughs) <laughs> didn't learn about anything else, you know. This would be a great place to dive back in. I mean, this guy Kendrick Lamar, he's amazing by any by any measure. Anyway, we'll have two much more learned people to explain why that is. You know, won't have to listen to me say that. Uh, right now, though, we want to talk about. Um, something that created a bit of a stir last week and has also put it in a larger context for you, Uh, you may have picked up the fact that at the uh, 2015 TED Vancouver conference, uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, appeared. Uh, She doesn't appear in public very often. She gave a TED talk. She talked about the problem of uh, public shaming. Um, Actually, even before we go to our guest, let's hear our, our first cut here from Monica Lewinsky, just so you, you know, remember the sound of her voice.
3: At the age of 22... I fell in love with my boss. And at the age of 24, I learned the devastating consequences. Can I see a show of hands of anyone here who didn't make a mistake or do something they regretted at 22? Yep, that's what I thought. (laughs) So like me, at 22, a few of you may have also taken wrong turns and fallen in love with the wrong person, maybe even your boss. Unlike me, though, your boss probably wasn't the president of the United States of America.
2: All right, uh, I wouldn't even want to be held accountable for what I did at 39. Uh, but. Um Uh, First of all, we're going to sort of set that stage for you a little bit more. We're talking to Ina Fried, senior editor at Recode. She was at TED 2015 in Vancouver. Um, And so I think the first thing that we should say, besides welcome to the show, Ina Fried, uh, (laughs) is – this obviously wasn't the only event. There was this obscure guy named Bill Gates who was there. Uh, there were lots of other Ted talks and, and maybe for people who have only the vaguest sense of what Ted is, just kind of set that stage for us, you know, what, what are you at when you're at uh, Ted 2015?
4: Totally. And it was my first time too. So I really got to experience it. I mean, imagine, you know, Al Gore is just some guy sitting in the audience and he was, and that's sort of a sense for the crowd. It's, leaders in tech, in business, in culture, all gathered to hear other people talk. So these are the kinds of people that generally, you know, don't listen to anyone for half an hour, and they're listening to talk after talk. Um, and this is probably the most polished set of speeches you'll ever hear. So that's the backdrop of what Monica was going up against. It's a week-long event. In hers was the talk that more people were talking about than anything, which I think Speaks to both the message that she was delivering it and the way that she delivered it.
2: Um, but you know, in a way, when you think about what Ted is. Um, Monica Lewinsky is kind of a throwback sort of guest in the sense that w- whatever she is and whatever news she made and whatever story she's associated with, it was really kind of at the dawning of the kind of culture that's celebrated and analyzed by Ted uh, and, and s- subsequent to which she mostly disappeared. I mean, in a way, she's she's talking about a story that began kind of at the cusp of, of what Ted is all about.
4: For sure. And that was really one of the things that was striking to reflect back on. I think we all sort of, you know, teleported ourselves back to, uh, you know, the late 90s. And it really was a different world when the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton story broke. And, you know, Matt Drudge heard that Newsweek was working on it. He wrote about it. You know, that was sort of the, you know, the Internet tabloid of the day. And Newsweek rushed to put its story online the first time that they'd taken a huge story that they had and put it online before print. Um, you know, so everything that was new and different um, when Monica's story broke is sort of commonplace, at least on the media side. So I think that was that was the first thing that hit all of us is, wow, yeah, th- there wasn't cyber bullying and there wasn't barely cyber.
2: There was just bullying. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just to locate it technologically uh, from my own point of view, one of my more vivid memories is when the Star Report was released, on the day the Star Report was released, I was live on the air on an afternoon radio show, and it was being... Um, in, in real time during the show fa- faxed over to us. It was faxed to us, you know. So these pages would kind of come pouring out. It was a commercial radio station, so during the commercials we'd run over to the fax machine and gather these big, you know, hand f- fistfuls of, of, of paper and look at them. So that kind of kind of locates Monica Lewinsky in an odd way in, in the sort of pre-digital technology or at least the first stirrings of it. But, you know, one thing that you wrote that I thought was really interesting, Ina Fried, uh, was and so Monica Lewinsky gave this speech about public shaming, about the culture of public shame, about the monetizing of public shame. And we can come back to that in a second. But uh, one of the phrases that you used in in some of your coverage of TED 2015 was um, conversations that were being had kind of out in the hall about, are we building a world that we're ultimately not going to live in, Uh, not going to want to live in, excuse me. And I mean, in whatever sense you meant that or, or the people saying it meant that, does that connect to what she's talking about?
4: It definitely does. I mean, a lot of the context, and that was a repeated theme that that came up in, was, you know, sort of, you know, augmenting our senses and, you know, the human cyborgs and all that. But I think it, it really applied to Monica's talk as well. You know, I think we can see, you know, this world where, you know, it's not just us, it's our kids. You know, it's it's young teenagers and younger um, that everything that was happening to Monica, except for the whole president thing, but but sort of that that, you know, cyber attacking... Is going on on a daily basis uh, in social media, and it's it's a tough world. You know, I I think I think it can be a good world, but you know, there was there was a lot of change that we were talking about that wasn't necessarily for the positive, or at least makes life harder. At the same time, it makes it easy to you know find cat videos.
2: I mean, one of the questions, and it's not a question that you and I will be able to resolve right now, uh, about Monica Lewinsky vis-a-vis all the kind of stuff that has followed, is: Is Monica Lewinsky sweet, generous? So, you know, I mean, is she sort of so? It's such an unusual story. I mean, it, it, it involves a president, but it also exists at a very specific moment. Probably, if the same thing happened three or four years from now. Um, it, it wouldn't create the same level of excitation because our understanding of uh, of public morals has probably shifted a little bit. I mean, there's so many things about her story that make it remarkable and special and different. Um, and, and what she had to endure um, was very special to the moment. And I, I, let me actually turn this into a question, which is, um, I, I wonder if there's something generational about this. Okay. So, I'm a baby boomer, and so Monica—I'm, you know, more or less Bill Clinton's generation, although younger, but, you know, so, so that hit me with a kind of force. But even reading some of the coverage of her speech by people who are younger, people who are in their 20s and 30s, I mean, I think they look at that story very differently, and they look at it as— as it really is part of a continuum uh, of other stuff and stuff that could just as easily happen to them, and and, and that they would be that they wouldn't want it to happen to them, that, that they can really kind of identify with this young woman.
4: Perhaps I mean I think that that the world certainly has changed. Uh, one of the points though that Monica was bringing up is that in addition to you know perhaps some of those changes, she didn't really get into that. But you know it was also the case at the time there wasn't Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, even though people were saying a lot of things about her, there actually were fewer avenues. So in some ways, um, it could be worse, at least to the degree there's a next person that gets that level of shaming. And the other thing is, you know, she did a really good job of just tracing how widespread it's become. So I agree with you that perhaps our, you know, direct vitriol for people in political scandals may have abated somewhat, although, you know, that remains to be seen – I think the point that she was making and that really hit home is just how many people are going through some sort of shaming of the kind that she went through. Obviously her story is unique, but you know, she traced it pretty well through, you know, Tyler Clemente, um, the young gay man who was, you know, sort of outed when somebody surreptitiously uh you know, shared a video that they had made um and you know, ultimately committed suicide. A lot of youth, you know, particularly LGBT youth, but just youth in general, just being subject to a whole lot of shaming from their peers. And then she also talked about the business side of it. So this, we aren't dealing with high schoolers. We are dealing with, you know, sort of the celebrity and reality TV world, but just that there's a whole industry. And, you know, certainly as an online website, you know, we're we're in a business where when we have a story that does well, that generates more advertising revenue. And she was saying... This is a pretty rough cycle we've gotten ourselves into economically.
2: We're talking to Ina Fried, senior editor at Recode. Although one thing that Monica Lewinsky didn't have um, that that exists now, although I think there's a debate about how well it functions. You know, whatever got said about Monica Lewinsky. For the most part, was said by gatekeeper entities of the media, right? In order to say something about, I mean, yeah, there was talk radio, but I mean, by and large, there was sort of the gatekeepers, and they said what they said, uh, and and that was about it. Whereas now, for all of the horrible shaming that goes on, there's also the potential for pretty much everyone to be heard, and and presumably in the late 1990s, there were people who were in their 20s, who were in their 30s, who saw this thing very differently, but they really Had no. There was no social media. There was no way in which um, a a person without uh, an uncredentialed commentator could could talk back on this. And you do sort of wonder whether it would have gone a little bit differently in a more democratically expressive environment like the one we have now.
4: Definitely. I mean, I think at least there would have been the opportunity for an I stand with Monica hashtag or some of that sort of thing. You know, I still wonder whether... You know the echoes of her defenders would be louder than the echoes of her critics, um, but it, you know it is true, and it is, was a different time. Um, but I think that was a lot of her point, and just wow, the length of time that these things can resonate. I mean, she was silent for a decade. She still doesn't have a regular full-time job. I mean, that's an awfully long time to have the impact go on. And I think you know her point was that you know I think. The, the times have changed. The technology has changed. Some of the cultural mores have changed. But wow, you know, this, this sort of shaming, and a lot of people aren't surviving it. And I think that was her point, too, is um, I think she had a twofold message in, you know, putting herself back out there. One was personal, saying, I'm still here. I've survived this. Um, But she made it very clear, and I I think this was the more important part, was letting other people who've been through some sort of difficult, you know, whether it's having your online photos leaked or what have you, that you can get through this. Um,
2: Let's hear a little bit more uh, of Monica Lewinsky uh, talking very specifically uh, about the the real nut of her argument, which is, in fact, this notion that what happened to her uh, might have been very unusual in its time but since then uh, as you're saying, Ina Fried, uh, there really is a, a continuum, a recognizable pattern of treating people this way.
3: Changing behavior begins with evolving beliefs. We've seen that to be true with racism, homophobia and plenty of other biases today and in the past. As we've changed beliefs about same-sex marriage more people have been offered equal freedoms. When we began valuing sustainability, more people began to recycle. So as far as our culture of humiliation goes, what we need is a cultural revolution. Public shaming as a blood sport has to stop. And it's time for an intervention on the Internet and in our culture. The shift begins with something simple, but it's not easy. We need to return to a long-held value of compassion, compassion, and empathy. Online, we've got a compassion deficit, an empathy crisis.
2: So, Ina Fried, she she brings up some things that I think the world of online culture has been talking about a lot lately, particularly in connection with Gamergate. Um, but. We almost have to begin with the question, is there such a thing as the world of online culture that you can talk to? In other words, the Internet being so amorphous and being kind of this this digital frontier, which has no real organization, no real structure, uh, this incredibly variegated sen- set of communication pipelines. Can, can you talk to the Internet and say and say what she said?
4: I mean, I think you can to the degree that I think it is the case that, The Internet is basically representative of society as a whole. So, I mean, I think, you know, it is possible to raise this question that she's raising of, you know, can we push toward compassion? But, boy, is it difficult. I mean, if you think about, you know, yes, we've overcome specific biases as a culture, and she pointed to a few, racism, homophobia, which I I wouldn't say we've, you know, fixed or cured by any means, but certainly cultural attitudes have have changed, and there's certainly – less acceptability of those things. But what she's really talking about is making sort of gossip and tabloidiness unacceptable. And, and that's an awfully tall order. I mean, when you think about it, those things have been around you know, since the days of the town crier um, and have shifted medium, but they certainly haven't gone away. That's the part that I think is really tough. I think another thing that's complicating about the Internet is still the anonymity of it all. I think, you know, I've noticed this, that... Um, You know, people are willing to say just the most horrific things on the Internet, in part because they're anonymous, but also in part because their target is invisible. And what I mean by that is, you know, people say things, you know, about me, to me, online, that I don't think they would actually say if they realized there was an actual human being on the other end. And I know this because sometimes I send an email and, and people are shocked that that was a real person that they were calling, you know, you know, an Apple-loving stooge or an Apple-hating troll or whatever, you know, insult they <laughs> want to level at me that week. Um, I think I think that that aspect of the Internet, that sense that, you know, there's not even real people involved, makes this worse.
2: First of all, if I were you, I would change my Twitter ID to apple loving stooge slash apple hating troll. <laughs> you know i mean embrace it all be be all those things and more um well it, it does strike me that one of the things that happens in in, in the birth of any new medium is If it can be used by people who are are disenfranchised, they will try to use it. And there are all kinds of groups that are disenfranchised. Some of them are the imperiled minorities that Monica Lewinsky was talking about, that you're talking about. But another group of people who regard themselves as disenfranchised are people who kind of hate everybody else uh, and who are really angry and don't like the way their own lives are. And 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 want somebody to blame. Uh, and and if not blame, take it out on. And so one of the things we saw with the rise of commercial talk radio in the 1990s, uh, early 1990s, late 1980s, that uh, you know, the birth of the Rush Limbaugh, uh, Sean Hannity kind of movement was that there were a lot of people stuck in cars in traffic jams and they were salesmen and they hadn't sold anything all day and they were really mad, they were angry, and they wanted to blame somebody, so they were going to blame minorities on welfare or, you know, democratic policies or something like that. And one of the things that's happened here is that the very worst people Who would have been talking about Monica Lewinsky, the people who had the most horrible, dreadful things to say, things that you couldn't get on CNN or or whatever was the the bullhorn of that moment, they can be, quote unquote, published. And that's one of the struggles that the Internet has, is that there's a lot of empowerment for everybody, including the absolute worst people, the dregs of the dregs, the people who will take a video of somebody's baby who has a birth defect and, and, and comment on how ugly the baby is, you know. I mean, those people, and and I don't think you can have the internet and shut those people up. I mean, I I don't know that there really is a way.
4: I don't think you can, and I think that some of this, you know, this return to compassion is an awfully tall order. You know, I think the best that you can hope for is that um, as a culture, we start to say, you know what, it's our responsibility to sort of defend the parents of that baby and take on their cause. So that at least the voices of hate, and, and as you point out, they're pretty myriad. They're, they're pretty widespread, um, but so that those voices of hate are at least uh, tempered with, you know, a culture saying, you know what, I think your baby's beautiful and I applaud what you're doing as parents. Because probably that message will get through. Um, you know, what she said was the support that she had helped her get through it. And I know from from a lot of other people that have struggled through and survived, you know, deep online harassment, um, you know, those few voices of reassurance of, you know, sort of cleaning the, the haters as haters and not you as the problem can be, make a big difference. I, th- I think the question is where that balance of, balance of power, if you will, of, of where that lands.
2: Um, Let's uh, grab a quick call from Gary. We're going to have to wrap this conversation up pretty soon. Our guest uh, has been uh, Ina Fried, senior editor at ReCode. She was at the TED 2015 conference in Vancouver. Here's Gary in Newtown. Hi, Gary. You're on the air.
1: Hi, Colin. I I haven't heard the Monica Lewinsky TED talk, but it seems to me uh, she conspired with uh, someone else to shame the president. Uh, So I'm not so clear about how she's a victim of shame. But maybe I need to listen to her. Oh,
2: God, this woman's had no life. I mean, first of all, I don't see how she conspired with the press. She had no idea this was ever going to get in the press.
1: She conspired with that right winger, Linda, whatever her name was. Well, Linda Tripp
2: was not a member of the press. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute, uh, Gary. You're kind of rewriting history here. All right. So Linda Tripp was somebody that she made the mistake of trusting. She was essentially a coworker. Yeah. She was not a member of the press. She was ha- she right. was having conversations with Linda Tripp, not knowing that Linda Tripp was was basically now collaborating uh, with or was was going to be collaborating with Kenneth Starr. So the notion that Monica Lewinsky in any way consciously participated in her undoing in the press or had any idea this was going to reach the press is that's uh-huh. that's like crazy talk uh-huh. I, I mean I, I don't know where you're getting getting that
1: well I just I, it seems to me that's that's how it it developed now you know maybe she didn't well, understand but, it was going to go to the press but
2: well yeah no that's she's absolutely
1: She, she have an agenda
2: i think her i think we, her agenda was that she was involved in a i mean she her agenda was not to bring down the president or to become famous for this nobody wants to become famous for this well you know we're going we may have to stop there although i think you you sort of hear how things get reinterpreted that's the other thing that happens in the internet like nothing is really stable uh in, information kind of morphs according to how people want to use it
4: for sure and i think that's the challenge and you know the challenge of you know every voice gets equal voice on the internet or sometimes on the radio, but in general on the internet, and I think that is the challenge.
2: Oh, here on the radio, we got cops. We got cops. (laughs) I had to be the cop that time. Ina Fried, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to take a break. We're going to tell you a story about art. Something sad happens, and then something good happens. All right. We're back. This is The Scramble. Uh, And as I say, we're going to tell you a story about art. And it's a story in which something goes wrong. But it's also going to be a story that we think is going to have a pretty happy ending uh, with some people doing the right thing, too. So um, let me set the stage. First of all, um, uh, I could probably do this better than anybody because I lived through the whole thing. In 1977, uh, the city um, obtained uh, and commissioned um, a piece of minimalist art, I think we could say, by the sculptor Carl Andre. It's called Stonefield Sculpture. It is 36 uh, boulders arranged in kind of a triangular formation. Uh, it exists uh, on Gold Street, hard against Center Church and, and the uh, ancient burial ground. Um, and they are these very large boulders. That's what they look like. And they're not adorned in any particular way. Uh, they were controversial at the time. There were people who thought that this wasn't enough. Uh, of an artistic statement to warrant the amount of the commission that was given Um, and they you know have been commercial they've been controversial off and on over the years although for the most part people almost tend to forget that they're there and i think that's what happened this time so joining us right now is christina newman hartford scott director of the city of hartford's marketing events and cultural affairs division so uh, christina uh, welcome back to our show
0: thanks colin it's great to be on
2: and so um, towards the end of last week, it was discovered that that as workers sometimes do, uh, some group of workers who are getting ready for something, you know, you often see this, that some spray paint is down to mark where utilities are or, or something, and that right. this, this had happened to the boulders. Um, go ahead, yeah.
0: So, yeah, we were notified by uh, a couple people. One of them uh, is Will K. Wilkins from Real Artways last week, Friday, who sent several pictures saying, hey... Um, do you guys know what's happening here? And we did not. we It was not um, a city of Hartford employees that did that. Uh, we are still kind of um, trying to figure out exactly why that happened because there's no work slated to be happening in that area. So essentially, they were these red and orange spray-painted areas to highlight electrical and gas lines. And so, um we found out, and we said we're going to address it as soon as possible the same way we would when we are dealing with graffiti in the Business Improvement District, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we did. We called Mike Zaleski, who runs the bid and helps us oversee issues such as this, and we're bringing out special experts, um, local artist Dow Laboisier and Ulrich Berkmeyer from the Wadsworth Athenaeum to help oversee the spray painting of the rocks,
2: Yes, so if we're going to, yeah, if we're going to, uh, we're going to go to Dow, I think he's live on the scene in just a second, but uh, just to sort of um, stay with you for a second on this and, and kind of, uh, so one of the, we just had a conversation in the previous segment about sort of how information spreads through the internet, sometimes mm-hmm. deleteriously. So over the course of the weekend, particularly those people who were looking at a Facebook page called Dwelling in Downtown Hartford, yep. um, there was all kinds of information being spread, all kinds of theories about what had happened, all kinds of theories about who had done this and why somebody had done on this, and was there going to be construction right where the rocks are sitting, or were, were these markings having to do with nearby construction uh, on Gold Street? So, are you, did I understand you to say just now it's still not 100% clear why the spray painting happened at all?
0: In that particular area, yeah. So, we're looking into that. Uh, Tom Deller, who runs the Department of Development Services, is working with the engineers and others to figure out why exactly that area was spray painted. Um, and to make sure that there's a process and a protocol moving forward so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again.
2: Um, and so, but, but we do know that there is some work being planned right there in that area, right? There's a project that's called Tiger, there's a project that's mm-hmm. called iQuilt. Uh, I, I've never quite grasped. Whether the tiger is actually wearing a quilt or, but it's but the there tiger is,
0: is wearing a quilt okay. and it's, it's
2: quite fabulous. Um, I can't wait. That's that's the first thing. I can't wait for the tiger wearing the quilt. But we we do know that, and also part, as part of CT Fast Track, right? That, I mean, tiger is a little bit part of that. That there's a one of the goals is to change the alignment of the street that's right next to these boulders. Uh, and one is, I mean, but we don't know for sure. And it, what would make sense anyway would be if workers were doing that, they'd want to know where the nearest utilities were that they might have to worry about. And if they thought they were running under the boulders, then they'd put the paint there. But we don't know that that's really the case.
0: Right. We don't know that that's 100% the case. However, you guys should know that um, we have reached out to Carl Andre's uh, representatives in New York, and we'll be having a phone conversation with them this week, because one of the things that we want to make sure happens is, should there be issues, for instance, say we get you know, the MDC says, you know, we're going to have to dig all kinds of things up because we have issues with water mains, etc. cetera. Uh, we want to have a plan in place. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be working with his uh, studio to make sure that there is such a plan.
2: Before we go to doubt, let me tell you a piece of history that I remember that hardly anybody else does, uh, which is that in 1978, Edith Gaines, who was then the superintendent of schools in Hartford, was fired, or her contract was not renewed. It was very controversial, Very, and the city heated up in a way that we haven't really seen since, I don't think. And we weren't that far from the time of, of um, the riots, and it seemed as though this could almost happen, that the city was a real powder keg. Uh, that didn't happen, but one very, very uh, heated night, uh, a group, a really large... Crowd assembled in the north end and marched in protest uh, into downtown Hartford. And their goal was to arrive at those rocks and to move one of the boulders as a symbolic gesture. Uh, The sense being that they'll spend eighty thousand dollars for these rocks, but they're not spending eighty thousand dollars for whatever. And and Edith Gaines is unfairly being removed, et cetera. Anyway, they all went down there and they tried to remove one of the boulders. Those suckers are a lot heavier than they look. I mean, (laughs) nobody. Yeah,
0: they're from. um, Yeah, they're around ten tons to one thousand pounds. Right. Um but you know we should clarify that the city of Hartford didn't fund the right. uh these rocks it was the uh Hartford Foundation for Public Giving along with a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts.
2: That's true. Good point. And then um so uh, the other thing was that I called Carl Andre uh to tell him this. Uh and uh, he said well he said you know it's kind of good in a way that like if they People want to exercise their rights and their frustrations and their voices. I'm, you know, I'm kind of honored that they picked my rocks. So he might be cool I think with so. it. Yeah, he might be more. He's 79 now. He might be more relaxed about this than you think.
0: He might be. And listen, it is art in the public realm. It's all part. You know, this is all part and parcel, so to speak, for public interaction. Some are going to enjoy it, some are going to be in between, and others are just not going to like it.
1: All
2: right. Well, Christina Newman-Hartford, Newman Scott, thank you so much for uh, helping us understand this, and, uh, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Colin.
2: All right. Now we're going to go, I think he's live on the scene. Uh, Dow Lebasier, uh is uh, the, the guy who's kind of stepped forward, an artist based in Hartford who's uh, a, in a sp- <clears throat> spirit of positive action uh, at a time when people were very upset about the spray painting of these rocks however accidental it might be, uh, has stepped forward to, to do something about this. So first of all,
1: hi, Dow. Hey, how's it going, Colin? Good. So are you at the rocks right now? I am appreciating it, as Carl Andre would have hopefully wanted me to. I'm sitting on the rocks.
2: Okay. Yes, Yeah. I think he'd be cool with that. That's the reason they're close to the street. And, and first of all, tell us what you see. I mean, how, how much – I've seen photographs, but I haven't been out there yet. Is there, a, like, a lot of orange spray paint on them?
1: Orange and red spray painted everywhere and about 15 rocks have uh, scraping
2: on it, and and yep. so um, I, I saw you kind of surface on a Facebook thread that was discussing all this, and and you just sort of volunteered right away to to see if you could you could clean this stuff up. Why did you do that?
1: Uh, I am a prof- professional artist, and uh, I have some uh, restoration experience, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to be of public service and just volunteer to clean it.
2: Um, If you had to try to, your work, I I know your work reasonably well, it's much more representational uh, than Carl Andre's uh, minimalism. If you had to explain to somebody why this is art, why the boulder you're sitting on right now is art, and why, therefore, it it ought not to be defaced or accidentally spray painted, what would you say?
1: Uh, Well, it's thoughtfully placed here by the artist as a conceptual work, whether Many people see it as artwork or not. That's uh, it's a representational perception. I think of it as art. It provides me a place to meditate. It's, the way it's laid out here in the space is very thoughtful. It's to it connect with nature, and uh, to me, it's beautiful.
2: Um, so, um. Obviously, one of the tricks here is going to be you're going to clean up the rock. Uh, but uh, it doesn't. You don't want it to look kind of like bleached or something like that. Like, do you know how to get this orange paint or orange and red paint off this rock without it having looked like you did it? Uh,
1: well, yeah. Uh, removing graffiti is a trial and error process of testing emulsifiers to make sure that you have the right one. Um, you're, you're soaking the uh, spray paint, and then you're removing it with either brushes or spray. I would do it as gently as possible. And I would make sure not to leave hard edged clean areas so that the cleaning looks worse than the actual graffiti. I'd feather out the edges and um, hopefully, you know, the lichen would grow back not too long a time.
2: Um, and and I, I guess one thing I just want to say is, I, over the weekend there were a lot of people who were really upset about this, and and people really yeah. did they were and people were worried. They thought maybe there was going to be construction right there where the rocks are. Uh, they were worried that something really bad had already happened to the rocks, or something bad was going to happen to the rocks. Some people even seemed to think that this might have been done intentionally for some reason, which seems very very unlikely. Um, I, first of all, I just would salute you. I mean, you sort of did come on there and say, "Hey." hey, I think this is uh, something people can deal with and that I can deal with, and I think I even know how to get these rocks clean. Um, so first of all, congratulations for being that voice. And, but I, I also wonder, maybe this, is, maybe this is part of a city, right? That part of the fun of being in a city is kind of getting upset about stuff, worrying about stuff, I and mean, being part of having the rocks here. Maybe even the whole hubbub that you eventually managed to, to quell at least a little bit is part of the excitement of living in a city.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, observing the thread, people were concerned with who to blame, and it was the the mood was a little bit uh, upsetting. And I thought I'd try to change that simply by saying, you know, we can just clean this. And uh, I know how to do it, so I offered. All
2: right. Well, Tao ta- 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 La- here, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations. I hope the cleaning goes well. I'm sure when I get on sure. Facebook tonight, I'll see all kinds of pictures uh, of the wonderful stuff that you did. Uh, thanks That's for awesome. joining us today. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to take a little break now. And as I said, we are going to spend the last part of the show, as we've done once or twice in the past, kind of, I don't know, maybe opening your ears up a little bit to some of the most exciting music being recorded today. Clean
5: it up. Boy, you got to clean it up.
3: nice for the museum to leave these bananas out for us what's that they were art my bad Today's show excuse me today's show was produced by tucker ives and me Kyone wolf our interns are sydney lauro and julia pestel greg hill tweets for us at wnpr colin and katie tularski is our executive producer the part of bill curry was played by saul lewitt For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff standing in the parking lot waiting for the fire drill to be over, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, what happens when medical science doesn't agree about whether a disease exists? And now, back to Colin.
2: Yeah, one of the weird symbiotic things about the Faith Middleton Show is it's down in New Haven. We're up in Hartford. But when we have a fire alarm, they all run out of their building, too. Uh, And we don't even have to tell them. They just know somehow we're that psychically connected. So, yes, we did have a fire alarm. A real fire alarm, too, right before the show today, but... It's been an awesome show. We're having a great time here. So one of the things that we were trying to do a little bit here on The Scramble, particularly when kind of landmark new music comes out, music that um, is so significant that it almost kind of changes the conversation, uh, is to to bring it up here and talk about it a little bit. And we know, I know that the listenership of the show is kind of all over the place. There are people who have never owned and think they never will own a hip-hop recording, you know? And then there are some people who know a lot about it. And then there's a whole bunch of people in between. Uh, but we really did feel, listening to uh, Kendrick Lamar's new release, uh, that it, it, it warranted a longer discussion, uh, as, just as we felt about D'Angelo's new release uh, back in early January. So joining us right now, and we may have a few voices here in this conversation, is uh, Erica West, a recent Yale graduate and a New Haven resident who has written about Kendrick Lamar's work for the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm a non-recent uh, Yale graduate. What, what year were you born, if I may be so rude? <laughs>
6: 1990.
2: Okay, so I'd been out of Yale for 14 years by then. Um, so, <laughs> so we're coming at this from opposite. But I, I just want to say before we even get to this, um, that um, before we even sort of get to the conversation here, my, my mind was blown by this, and even being this decrepit and aged person uh, that I am, uh, I, I understood right away I recognize all kinds of musical traditions and influences that I'm very familiar with in this. But b- before we even talk about it, let's hear a little bit of it. And hey, Wolfie, maybe we could begin with, uh, this is actually considered an interlude within the CD. Some of the interludes are as amazing as anything that isn't an interlude on somebody else's CD. This is called For Sale? mark.
5: You said to me, I remember what you said to You said, my name is Lucy Kendrick. You introduced me, Kendrick. Usually I don't do this, but I see you and me, Kendrick. Lucy give you no word. Lucy got million stories about these rappers that I came after when they was boring. Lucy go fill your pockets. Lucy go move your mama out of confidence inside the gigantic gotcha mansion, like I promised. Lucy just wants your trust and loyalty. Avoiding me. It's not so easy. I'm at these functions accordingly, Kendrick. Lucy don't slack a minute. Lucy work harder Lucy go.
2: All right, so Erica West, this is a tough release to talk about. I don't know if I've said it. It's called To Pimp a Butterfly is the name of the CD. That was Harper Mm -hmm. Lee's original plan for her title for her book, too. Um, But um, it's a hard CD to talk about because it's not one thing, right? This is Kendrick Lamar assuming multiple identities uh, and and multiple points of view. Do I have that
6: right? Yeah, for sure.
2: And so tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, if you were to describe the overall effort that he's making here on this, what would you say?
6: it's really just one um 79 minute story um i had this discussion with a few friends and like we can't even um skip songs it's just one story that um i can listen to over and over again um and and he just he's just a great storyteller like he doesn't like to um for people to call him a rapper he's more of a writer a poet um and so i think he's using uh To pimp a butterfly um, you know to prove to prove that he is a storyteller
2: and and I think also the other thing that he's proving here i mean I think for once again for people who are maybe not very heavily initiated uh, into the world of hip-hop, um, mm-hmm. it seems to them maybe that it's sort of spoken word over not that much, not, not very interesting beats. And, and well, I mean, this is an incredibly dense, rich musical soundscape, this whole CD. It's the kind of CD you'd almost, om- or the kind of album you'd almost expect Miles Davis to release if he were alive in 2015. I mean, it, it's yeah, kind of... I was
6: going to say
2: that. <laughs> did I steal one of your lines? Oh, no. Uh, oh
6: no not at all yeah. but I was just going to say it's, it sounds exactly like Miles Davis you know blue and green has that feel to it
2: Um the um uh maybe also for people who are not not super initiated maybe you can just quickly say something about who Kendrick Lamar is I mean uh, if somebody sort of doesn't understand or the name doesn't really mean that much who is Kendrick mm-hmm. Lamar
6: Yeah he's um from Compton California um which most people probably heard of because of Ice Cube and nwa but um he's 28 um yeah he's he's just um someone coming from a very hard city to grow up in um and just trying to show that you know like everyone's preconceived notions of Compton, california about everyone is either a gangster or you know Um, someone in jail or something, that um, it's not all about that. And he's trying to shy away from that, um, those notions.
2: In a a way, you can't make people happy because, um, you know, Kendrick Lamar, clearly that is a lot lot of his message, that this isn't all about uh, gangster life. On the other hand, one of the um, knocks that he gets occasionally is that he's almost... Too soccer mom friendly, right? That he's he's sort of the hip hop guy that you can have on in the minivan, uh, and, uh, and 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 maybe not have to sort of struggle with anything or or feel like you're you're listening to anything transgressive. How would you uh-huh. respond to that?
6: Um, I I think that's very interesting, and I I get what people like mean by that, mm-hmm. but I just think that those um perspectives are boxing him in as a person. Mm-hmm. Um oh. so I, I I I get why people say that and stuff, but I would think if anything, Drake is more of his soccer yes. mom type uh rapper, but
2: you could actually buy can v-
6: like y- educational music, you know, like um people are studying his album in college at Vassar, I think.
2: Right. Well, you can actually buy minivans that are pre-equipped with Drake. They just play Drake. You know, you start them up and they play Drake. So um, we're going to add one more voice to this conversation in just a second. But you, you actually have um, a family or connection to to uh, Kendrick Lamar. Do you have a
6: you have a cousin who's worked with him? Yeah, actually, um, one of my cousins went to high school with him, and he also is like um, um, of the. I'm sorry. Um, he he grew up like Kendrick, you know, like in Compton, but wasn't affiliated with a gang or anything. So like they, um, my aunt has um, built a studio in her garage, so um, her kids can go and hang out and rap and do what um, whatever. So um, Kendrick was over his house probably quite quite often, and they have some some raps together. Pretty funny
2: to hear. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, let's. Um, Erica, uh, Wes, let's hear a little bit more of, um, uh, of Kendrick Lamar. Uh, this is uh, a little bit from the cut. This is a frankly erotic cut. I'm not going to um, draw you a picture. You'll have to do that in your own mind. It's called These Walls. <laughs>
5: Jacket, I'm the guard of Nazareth, but your flood can be misunderstood. Wall telling me they're full of pain resentment. Need someone to live in, I'm just a relief kitchen. Me, I'm just a tenant. Landlord said, The wall vacant more than a minute. The wall are vulnerable! Exclamation, interior pink, color coordinated. I interrogated every nook and cranny. I mean, I'm still amazing, before they couldn't stand me. These walls wanna cry tears, these walls happier when I'm here. These walls never go hold up. Every time I come around, demolition might. Push. If these walls can talk, I can feel you rain when it cries. Gold lips inside of you. If these walls could
6: talk, I love it when I'm in I
5: love it when I'm in it. These walls can talk, they tell me to go deep. Yelling at me continuously, I can see.
2: All right, uh, that's a little bit more uh, from uh, To Pimple Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. Uh, we've got Erica West with us. We're going to talk to Jeffrey Ogbar in a second. Let's take a call from Ryan in Wallingford. Hi, Ryan.
4: Hey, Colin. How are you? Just
2: fine.
1: I was just listening to your music that
4: you were uh, mentioning, uh, like if you didn't like, uh, if you're an older, if you like old music or and you don't know anything about the modern music and mm-hmm. stuff, how is a person that grew up with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones supposed to relate to that music although the second piece was much more enjoyable than the first.
2: Well, first of all, this is a 79-minute concept album. Uh, You... Uh, so you mentioned the Beatles. You're familiar with, say, the White Album? You ever remember the White Album?
1: No, gee whiz, I never heard of the uh, White Album.
2: Okay, so the White Album was full of all kinds of, of very... Expe- I heard of the White yeah, Album. Okay, well, the White Album was full of all kinds of very experimental stuff, up to and including, of course, Revolution No. 9. So really by the end of the time of the the, the, the Beatles were the Beatles, they were really starting to look into these areas as well. They didn't sound like that first song ever, called, Well, Oh, no. Ever. That, that's because... Well, first of all, that's because they were the Beatles. But you're familiar with maybe Marvin Gaye, Sliced. Yes, I am. Well, you know, well, sit down with this Kendrick Lamar CD, listen to the whole thing, put down your old fogey glasses for a second, really listen to it. You don't don't know g- I'm an old fogey. <laughs> you very clearly are. And call me back. And tell me that you don't think it's a real extension of the work that you might have loved by Sly Stone, by Marvin Gaye, and later by Prince. I mean, this really is um, – give it a chance. Don't judge it on 30 seconds of a clip that you just heard on a radio show. Listen to the whole thing. Joining us right now also uh, is Jeffrey Ogbar, founding director of the Center for the Study of Popular Music and the histo- uh, and professor of history at the University of Connecticut. And in a way, uh, Jeffrey Ogbar, you're listening to cultural history right here. A guy calling up and saying, I love the Beatles and the Rolling Stones how could I possibly like this music? Probably not the first time you've heard something like that.
7: Uh, No, not at all. And, uh, I mean, the thing is that that Kendrick Lamar is not meant to be a, uh, you know, the Beatles is not meant to be, uh, you know, the sort of music that, I mean, clearly music doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes out of a sort of long rich tradition of exchange and and ideas and inherent sense of ideas and dealing with, uh, you know, cultural predecessors. But, you know, the Beatles weren't meant to be uh, Duke Ellington, you know, and I'm sure there are many people who love Duke Ellington who heard the Beatles and found it to be incredibly, uh, you know, distasteful. And, you know, this, this is how, how, how music is. And it's a sort of diversity of, of pop music and innovative styles of artists uh, like, like uh, you know Kendrick Lamar or, you know, Duke or, you know, Miles Davis. or or the Beatles, you know, that I think makes uh, music exciting for new generations.
2: If you were to try to to explain to somebody, Erica West has been doing a a wonderful job kind of helping us uh, understand what this uh, release means to her. Um, If you were to to explain to us what you're, as you listen to this, and this really is one of these albums you have to listen to a lot, and there's a lot of things to mine out of it. I mean, what are you finding in there?
6: Uh, I, I
7: like the album a lot. And, and I have given a couple talks in the last week, uh, one at McGill University in Montreal, a, a bright maybe two days after it uh, came out. And the students were abuzz about it. And I talked to a producer who was saying that, you know, he's listened to it. And for him, and this this is, I guess, the takeaway here is that uh, for him, the producer, he said that I listened to it a number of times and I was lost in the production. I thought about the beats I thought about the horns I thought about the the sort of the the, comp, the sonic composition of it all and for him he was sort of lost in that milieu where uh other folks who are sort of you know into the the lyrics you know spend a lot of time just sort of concentrating on the, you know, the, the witty wordplay, the intertextual allusions, the uh, you know, alliterations, the, uh, you know, double entendres, and, and all sort of like rich wordplay, and other people who are deep into his politics, you know, and they, they, they get so much from that. So I think the, the, the album is, is incredibly rich, it's textured, and offers so much to so many people. I think that's what makes it just, just something so, um, so conversation-worthy. And uh, the other talk was at Baylor in Texas, and the students there were very enthusiastic. My last slide happened to be the cover of his album. And when I put that up, the people cheered. <laughs> They're really enthusiastic about Kendrick Lamar, and I haven't seen that degree of enthusiasm for a new artist in a very long time. I mean, Drake had a lot of enthusiasm as well, but Kendrick Lamar really has captured a certain sort of uh, you know, energy and interest among the people, and young people in particular, in a way that I haven't seen.
2: All right. Uh, well, listen, thanks very much. We have to wrap this up now. I wish we could talk some more about this. We're going to go out with how much a dollar cost from this new CD by Kendrick Lamar. Uh, if you're out there, Ryan, give it a chance. Get on. Have one of your kids get you on Spotify or your grandkids or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to get an email about that.
5: Staring back at him, feeling some type of disrespect. If I could throw a bat at him, he'd be aiming at his neck. I never understood someone begging for goods, asking for a was taking it if they could. And this particular person just had it down back, staring at me for the longest until he finally asked Have you ever opened up Exodus 14? A humble man is all that we ever need. Tell me how much a dollar cost.